right, well, we're going to jump into God's Word today. And if you would just open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. I have purposely been um, continuing through the study of 1 Timothy, even during this, this Christmas season, because I've really had an agenda. I've really wanted to get through, um, through these qualifications that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, because we, we, um, we have some purposes in that. Um, and then obviously we'll be stopping for the next, um, next weekend as we'll have a special uh, gospel message and Christmas message for that gathering. But I really wanted to push through and get through uh, at least through today, what we're going to look at. Because we've been studying the qualifications for church leadership, known as elders. And the, the church, I just want to remind you, is God's most sacred possession. He sent his son to die for it. And so he has entrusted the oversight and the care and the management of this most trusted possession to church elders. Elders have been given, you could say, stewardship of God's household. It's his house. And he's entrusted the stewardship of it to elders. And there are many responsibilities of church elders, and we've looked at many of these over the last few weeks, but one is to protect the church. So they're supposed to be responsible, trustworthy men who are able to feed the church as well. One of the qualifications, being able to teach, to care for the, the church, and to lead the church, to shepherd God's flock. But as we read scripture, there are others that God has provided to the church in order that its members might receive proper care. Now, it is the responsibility of the elders to care for the church. The primary caring that takes place is over um, practical needs and spiritual needs. Uh, spiritual needs through the teaching of God's word and practical needs like visiting the sick and comforting those who are bereaved providing counsel, strengthening the weak. Those are certainly the care the elders are to administer to the church. However, there are many uh, menial tasks which do not require the, the work of an elder. Elders do provide care, but their priority is meant to be for prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the Lord in his infinite wisdom provided another group of people to serve his church and to meet their practical needs. And they are called deacons. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard of deacons before. Maybe you've been at other churches where you had a deacon board. I certainly came from one. And there are all sorts of functions that deacons have had in various churches over the years. And I hope to sort of clear up some of the confusion today as we study it. But if you just look at verse 8, this is where this word is coming to us, just to start with. If you look at it, it says verse 8 in, in chapter 3, it says, likewise, deacons. So there's that word deacons, and likewise there is a key word. It's a transitional word. It tells us that we're still in the overall topic of church leadership, but we've introduced a new category, and the category is deacons. And the word in the Greek is diakonos. And it quite simply means a servant. That, that is what diakonos means. Maybe even more literally, a waiter. So if you've been to a, a restaurant and having someone wait, waited on you at the table, you could call them a deacon. <laughs> you, 
They're an attendant. They're someone who serves another person. And it's a very, very common word in the New Testament. It's used over 30 times. And it's generally translated as you go through your Bibles as servant. That's the most common translation. But there are a few exceptions, and we come across a couple of them here in our passage. In chapter 3 here, it is three times transliterated, I'm going to say it that way, as deacons. In verse 8, it's deacons. And in verse 10, let them serve as deacons. And in verse 12 as well, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. I say transliteration because the translation is servant. But the, 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 those that are translating the Bible, looking for an English word to describe the role that is being spoken of here, transliterated it in English into this word deacon to speak of the role that it has. It's only here in 1 Timothy 3 and one other place possibly, and it's Philippians 1, 1. I'll show you to you. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. You can see why they translated deacons there, transliterated deacons, because he speaks of the bishops or the elders and deacons. He's speaking about the leadership here. When you look at the words of Jesus in the passage that uh, Reese read for us earlier at the start of the service in Mark chapter 10, he used another word. And I want to show it to you here. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, it says this, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. That's diakonos. But in verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, diakoneo, but to serve, diakoneo, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here we see the two words we see are diakonos, translated as servant, in our passage, it's translated deacon. It's the same word. But we also see this other form of the word, diakoneo, means to serve or to, to be served. There's also in Scripture a generic term, which means service. And it is uh, diakonia. It's translated service. So three words come to us here. And that word, diakonia, is in the spiritual gifts in Romans 12. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. That is service, diakonia. So these three words together throughout Scripture have many, many meanings. There's over a hundred times that they're used. Administration is one of the meanings we see, uh, one of the ways they're they're used to care for, to minister to. We certainly see these three forms, servant and serve and service. We see it used as the word preparations. We see relief or support. And in our passage today, we see deacon. So it was a, a natural that the word came to represent all kinds of service. But here, related to the acts of serving, we see a specific office. It is the office of deacon. And so what are deacons? Well, simply put, they're the servants of the church, which is the title of today's sermon. They're the servants of the church. It is true that elders are meant to model servant leadership. Elders are no less servants. Their Lord came not to be served, but to serve. But deacons are to provide practical care by helping to provide and coordinate care for physical material, and 
even financial needs of those in the church. Now, where did this office of deacon come from? Well, many hold that the first official deacons were those seven men that were chosen in Acts chapter 6. And so really, this is just to introduce this. I want to take us there really briefly to look at it. So just make a left-hand turn to the book of Acts. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we're just going to look at these first seven verses to see what is happening here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now it says this, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, the Greek-speaking Jews... And their widows, they were complaining against the uh, other Jews that their widows weren't getting the same amount of, dis- of, of needs met. That their, the daily distribution wasn't meeting them the same. So verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. So there's many disciples of Christ, but there were twelve, weren't there? Twelve disciples. In the New Testament, they're apostles. And at this point, Judas has hung himself. So you might be wondering why there's still twelve But if you remember your study of the book of Acts, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. So there are still 12. So here the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So many think, they look at this and say, oh, this is where the first deacons were chosen. I would say certainly we see a a prototype here of what would later become the office of deacons, but nowhere here in this passage are these men called or referenced to as deacons, nor are they called that anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, Stephen and Philip are the only other two that are mentioned later in Acts, and they're called or referred to as evangelists. The only words used in this passage are uh, diakonia, service, that's used in verse 1 of daily distribution, and in verse 4, referencing the apostles to the ministry of the word, that's diakonia there. But you also see uh, diakoneo, to serve, and that's in verse 2, where the apostles say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve at tables. And nowhere in the entire book of Acts do you see diakonos, the deacon word used, at which I, that's why I, I think would be, it'd be an odd thing for that to be absent if the function and office of deacon was actually established here. You would think you would see that somewhere uh, else. What we do see established in Acts is elders, office of elders. So the official office of deacon, in my opinion, is likely something that came into form and function down the road. 
as the church grew and as the needs grew. Remember, this letter that we're looking at, 1 Timothy, is some 30 years after the birth of the church and due to that growth and due to the, the church need, they realized they needed that office of deacon. So I think that was a prototype, what they saw happen with, with Stephen and those others, and they established it uh, here. The church I come from is Grace Chapel, um, but... Um, when, when I first joined the church, it was called First Baptist Church of Lancaster. And like many Baptist churches, we had a deacon board. We had no elder board. The leadership of the church, they were, they were deacons, but they were functioning as elders, so they were just called uh, deacons. And so when Pastor Chris came in, that was something that he slowly began to work on and, and change uh, over the years. Uh, the deacon board changed then to uh, a board of elders, which is more biblically uh, accurate. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But here, what Paul is doing in chapter 3 is bringing us a list of, of qualifications for those who serve as deacons. And what you're going to see is that this list of qualifications is just as stringent, as, as uncompromising as the qualifications for elders of the church. And you might think, well, that's odd because aren't they just people who are willing to serve? It's true. But because of the public profile and the nature of their work, they need to be people who meet certain qualifications. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we start, I just want to mention that there are two major differences between what we see in terms of qualifications for elders and deacons, between those two. And the first is that this deacon group, they do not have the requirement uh, to be able to teach. You don't see that there. That is the one thing that sets them apart from, uh, elders apart from them. Elders must be teachers. Remember last week we talked about that. They must be gifted spiritually with the gift of, of teaching. But more importantly, in chapter 2, you might remember Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And then in chapter 3, he says, but elders need to teach. Ergo, a woman cannot be an elder. And yet we find many times people just sort of looking over those things. But here as we come to deacons, which leads really to the second key difference, we don't see the qualification of being able to teach. Therefore, women can be deacons. They would be deaconesses. Also, women is actually, they're specifically mentioned in our passage here, and we're going to cover that. So I think you'll find this, this section interesting. Let's look at it. It's chapter 3 and verses 8 through 13. Follow along as I read. Verse 8 says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons, Obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for your instruction, Lord, for your, your blueprint here, really, for how a church is to conduct themselves, um, who is to be in, in these, these positions in the church as overseers and as servants. And Lord, we thank you for your instruction here on deacons. I pray that your spirit would be with us, that you reveal truth, Lord, that we would clearly see these things. And Lord, seek to just... Um, Apply these things in our own lives and in the function of the church for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right. Well, first, we're just going to look at Paul's dealing with male deacons here to begin with. We'll look at the deacons. So very simple outline. The deacons is what we're starting with. And here we're going to see five areas in which a a deacon is to be examined. We looked at certain areas of an elder's life that needed to be examined. Here we're going to see that um, these, these areas, there are five of them. And the first area is his personal character. His personal character. Look at verse eight again. It says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. Reverent. That word in the Greek is semnos. It's an interesting word. It means serious or grave, um, stately, maybe honorable, dignified would be kind of the terms you'd be looking at there. One commentator said that the word we want here is one in which the sense of gravity and dignity is combined. The word points to seriousness of purpose and to self-respect in conduct. Now, you might look at this word and go, so this person just needs to be stern (laughs) and joyless. Is that what you're saying? No, no, he's not meant to be a joyless person, but he is meant to understand the seriousness of life. This person can't be a clown. He must understand there are serious things that they're going to be dealing with. And remember, there's an overarching quality for an elder. We looked at back in chapter, um, beginning of chapter three, a bishop must be blameless, meant above reproach. I really think we can look at this reverent um, qualification in the same way. It encompasses the others. And I would say um, that it's the one positive trait that we see here because the others that follow are negative. They must be people who um, are worthy of respect. They're dignified individuals. And people who are worthy of respect will need to be examined in three areas related to their personal character, his communication, his preoccupation, and his motivation. The first is communication, his communication. Notice what it says here in verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. This has to do with their speech, their communication. It's a weird word, a strange word. It's only used here in the New Testament. And you might be thinking, well, this is a person uh, that can't be a gossip. Well, that's not what this is referencing. Um, In fact, gossip is mentioned later in reference to a deaconess. No, here, double-tongued is diligas. And it literally means this, saying one thing to one person and saying a completely different thing or a contrary thing to someone else. To not be hypocritical or to be sincere in your speech. This is a man whose speech is characterized by honesty, by integrity. His speech, in other words, cannot be hypocritical. Why? Well, he's got to be consistent in the way that he communicates to others. Because a man who communicates different stories to different people is not going to gain confidence and trust of people, particularly people in need. And I'm sure you've all met people like this. You're trying to get to the bottom of their problem, and you're trying to get the story. And as you dig further into the story, it just seems more and more convoluted. You get different parts of it. Maybe someone else comes in and tries to get, I I heard they say it this way. This is, and it's hard to get to the bottom of what the need is. There's so many variations of a story. One of the roles of a deacon is that they're going to need to be able to get to the bottom 
of a story. Everyone has a story. What's your need? What's going on? And they're going to need to be able to, to discern whether or not there is a legitimate need. Are you getting the full story? And so that person themselves cannot be duplicitous. They cannot be manipulative in their speech when people might be trying to do the same to them. They must be people who understand that we're looking for clear, clear, confident communication. Will a deacon be able to get that from other people? He will if he's worthy of respect. If he can gain the trust of people, they will take him at his word. So they cannot be double-tongued. Maybe you've met people like this, and you go to city center this time of year, and there's many people in need there. And sometimes your heart goes out, and you want to go and, and find out what they need, and you, you begin to find, like, there's all kinds of stories coming here, and I don't know what is true. A deacon can't be that kind of person. So his communication must be sincere, trustworthy. Secondly, we look at what preoccupies his life, his preoccupation. That was his communication. What preoccupies his life, we can be preoccupied with all kinds of things. It's not bad to have hobbies. It's not wrong to be into certain things. I like to read books. That's okay to, to do those things and have uh, hobbies. Life is, is busy, but you also need sort of unwinding time, don't you? Well, a reverent man, a man worthy of respect, can be preoccupied with things, but not to an unhealthy point, and certainly not in this area. Notice what it says in verse 8. He's not given to much wine. Now, we saw a similar qualification when we looked at the qualifications for elders, didn't we? In fact, if you look back at it, you can, you can see it there. He's not, to be, not given to wine is in verse, verse 3. That's related to elders. But that was a different word. It's one word in the Greek, paroinos. Here, we have three different words, given, too much, and wine. And so the operative word for us to look at is given, and it's prosecco. It's not prosecco, the bubbly because that would be weird. Prosecco. That means to turn the mind to. What is his mind thinking of? To attach oneself to in mind and in thought. He's not to be a heavy wine drinker, nor to allow it to influence his life. It can't be his habitual practice, meaning his mind cannot be preoccupied with such a thing as this. And we looked in detail a lot about this last week, so I don't want to dig into that again this week in terms of, of elders. But Scripture nowhere prohibits drinking of alcohol, but there's certainly many warnings, and particularly for those in leadership, about where that can lead. A deacon must be preoccupied with the more important things that are happening in the church. He can't be preoccupied with wine. There's a third area that we need to look at, and that's his motivation. What is his motivation for taking on the role of a deacon? Well, notice what it says here in verse 8 again. He's not given too much wine and not greedy for money. This is one word in the Greek. It's the same word that was used back in verse 3. You might remember back in verse 3 with the elders, it said not greedy for money, but I mentioned that that, that word likely isn't there in the original because the original manuscripts don't have it. Uh, instead, it says not covetous, which is the same thing. But here that word appears. It's here in the original manuscripts. And it's an interesting word. I'll do my best to pronounce it. Ahi shrokkerdes. That's an interesting word. It means eager for base gain. 
Some translations you might have it saying greedy of fil filthy lucre or fond of sordid gain. In other words, he must not have another motivation for being in the office as deacon. Deacons as servants are going to be seeking to meet the practical and material needs of the church, and they must be trusted then with um, money. Many times they're going to be needing to take money and distribute it to those in need. And this person cannot be greedy for money. They can't be trusted with that um, unless we can see that in their lives, that there's, there's no lust or greed for that in their lives. We, um, the deacon uh, board that we ended up establishing later at Grace Chapel, which we did, in fact, I, I, I helped establish it. We wrote down what the qualifications were. We selected the individuals and we established a deacon board, um, men and women, to meet the needs of a, a church. It's a large church. There's a lot of needs that were coming all the time. And I will tell you that, that us pastors, were we were stretched thin. We were actually assigned um, each a different week to be the person to meet and, and deal with those needs. And sometimes you were doing that for several days in a row having to go to someone's house, talk to them about their finances, figure out what the need was, why are they, and it just took so much time. And so we finally said, why are we doing this? We're supposed to devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word, and, and we're just going all the time, figuring out these, we should get a deacon board. And so that's what we began to do. And once a month, at the end of the month, um, we did a second offering collection. It was at the end of the service, and it was called the Deacon Fund. It was specifically money collected to go and meet the needs of the body. And so we knew how much was there, and we knew what could be distributed, and we entrusted the deacons with that. Now, we didn't give them a pot of cash. Obviously, it was in the bank, but they knew how much they had, and we had all kinds of checks and balances. They had to fill out forms and write down, you know, for what and reason and how and who and when and why. And if it was over a certain amount, they had to get a, a approval. Those are wise uh, things to, to do. But they had, at the end of the day, they had money at their disposal. And, and I had to be able to trust each and every one of those people on the deacon uh, board that they weren't greedy themselves. You might remember one such person in Scripture who happened to be a treasurer. <clears throat> not our treasurer, sorry. Not you. Judas Iscariot, he had another motiv motivation for being the treasurer, didn't he? You might remember when um, Jesus would, would travel to Jerusalem, he had a favorite stopover place, Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And one of the times that he stopped there, it was Martha that came out and, and anointed his feet with this costly oil. Do you remember? It was Judas. Judas who said, why are we wasting this oil? We could have sold this for, for 300 denarii and, and given it to the poor. And the very next verse in John 12 reveals that that wasn't his true motivation. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. You see, deacons have access to the money box in a sense. And so they got to be people who can be trustworthy and free from any love of money. And therefore their lives must be examined to that point. So these three categories will all fall under personal character. Let's look at the next area. The next area which must be examined is his spiritual life. Look at verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So I told you that deacons don't have the requirement to be able to teach, but here we're told that they have to hold the mystery of the faith. What is, what is that? Well, Paul used that word mystery 
uh, quite frequently in his writings. It always referred to revealed truth that was uh, previously hidden, but now made manifest in the New Testament. Let me give you one such example in Ephesians 3. Ladies, you've been going through the book of Ephesians. I don't know if you're in chapter 3 yet, but here's, here's one such example. Chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So here, Paul uses that word mystery twice. He calls that the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? Well, that was the gospel, and that gospel would be for Gentiles as well as for Jews. They would be included in the church. So here, Paul says in our passage, the mystery of the faith. What is that? Well, it's, it's all the deep truths of the faith that we adhere to today, all the things that have been revealed in the New Testament that were revealed in the Old. Think back to the Old Testament. We just went through Hebrews. We've got a lot of examples of that. How could God truly forgive sins completely? Because every year I've got to offer a bull or a goat as a sacrifice. Could God completely forgive sins? How can I approach God? I can't approach God. The high priest approaches him. Well, we know these things have been revealed to us in the New Testament. Those were the mysteries now answered in the New. And so the mystery of the faith that a deacon must hold on to are all the essentials of the faith. That includes the incarnation of Christ. That includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the unity of Jew and Gentile into one church, the priesthood of the believer, the gospel, and on and on. Everything that accords with sound doctrine, they must hold to the mystery of the faith, and they must hold it with a pure conscience, is what he says. A pure conscience. The men who were at the Men's Bible Study Wednesday should have something to say about what a pure conscience uh, has to do with related to, to, to doctrine. We've been studying a book called Let the Men Be Men, and in chapter 7, the book was titled Let Men Be Discerning, and it was based off of Titus 2, 7, which is to, written to young men, and this is what it says. It says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. In other words, their, their conduct should match their creed. In doctrine, they should show integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. They should hold fast to the doctrine they believe by conducting their lives according to what they believe. Does this person live out their faith? Do they live the way they say they, it, what they believe in? They, they live it that way. Look at their lives. A deacon is to be that kind of man, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. He's a man who is pure in doctrine, learns biblical truth, and applies it by the power of the Holy Spirit to his life. That's this person. They believe the truth, but they also live the truth. So that's his spiritual life. Let's look at his third area, his Christian service. His Christian service. This is verse 10. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Now, let me just tell you, this doesn't mean there's a formal test. Uh, a deacon doesn't need to be given a, a 30, you know, 200 question test on the Bible. 
That's not what it's talking about. Nor is it a probationary period. Some people make it that. Oh, there's a probationary period where they serve as a deacon. Rather, I think these men have proved their qualities over time through the normal activities and, and, of life and ministry. You've been able to observe them. They've been here long enough. There's been some time. Remember, elders are to be mature men, not novices, lest they become puffed up with pride. Well, that's because maturity takes time. Likewise, deacons, they've got to be part of a fellowship long enough for their activities and their attitudes to be tested, to be proven. They shouldn't be brand new believers either. They should be here long enough where we can see that their motivation simply is for the glory of Christ. They serve humbly, sacrificially. Have they been doing that? Look at those people. Do they already have the respect and trust of the people? How about their communication with others? What are they preoccupied with in life? What is their motivation? All those things can be observed through their Christian service. I really approach the elders the same way. I already saw some of them naturally shepherding the church. I saw shepherd qualities. We look for the same thing with deacons. Are they servants? Are they humbly serving all the time? Not even having to ask them. They just do it naturally. Those are your deacons in waiting. And it says here, if they're found blameless, they can serve as deacons. Remember the qualification for an elder? He's to be blameless above reproach. That was uh, a word very similar to this word, but Paul uses a different one. This word is anengletos, and it means unaccused, unaccused, free from any charge. Although their function is different than that of an elder, they also must be men who are free from major moral and character defects and flaws. They've got to be blameless. Upon observing their lives in that way, they must be found that way. And so men serving as deacons, we look at their spiritual life, we look at their Christian service, we look at their personal character. We come to verse 11, which we're going to skip momentarily because it has to do with women. Just want to jump to 12 so we can finish off with the men. We'll come back to verse 11. Verse 12 has to do with his moral purity. Just the first part of it says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Don't need to go through all this again. I hope we went through this in detail in uh, last week or the week before talking to um, you about elders. They must be the husband of one wife. And again, what that means, it refers to his marital and, and, and sexual purity, his life there, not his marital status. It's not saying he's got to be a married man. Um, the issue is his moral purity. Is he, if he's married, 100% faithful to his wife in heart, mind, and deed? It's just speaking of if he's married. So he must have moral purity there. And then the second half of that verse has to do with his home life, which is another area we saw similar in the life of an elder, ruling their children and their own houses well. So with the elders, we talked a lot about that last week as well, that they've got to show that they can lead in their home. Uh, In fact, Paul brings up a question in verse 5, because if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how could he rule in a church? Similarly here, these people, if they're not serving and leading in the right way in their homes, they, then they shouldn't be allowed to serve and lead in the church. They've got to, to rule their children and their house as well. And again, he says, so look at the children. 
Do the children respect their father? Do they listen to him? Do they see him as a leader? Do they see him as a servant? Do they see those things? Look at the children. And he says, look at the house as well. They must demonstrate that, that he's a good manager of his house, meaning everything in it. Money, possessions, all those things. So I don't want to go too, too deep into those because we really dug into those related to the elders last week, and you can go back and listen to that. But those same areas are brought forward and applied to deacons, servants of the church. So obviously, this is a very important role to Paul. Now let's go back to verse 11 because this is an area of, of, um, of, of much discussion, um, even different views. This is the area I'm going to look at called the deaconesses, okay? We looked at the deacons, and now let's look at the deaconesses. Verse 11 says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. First, I want to begin by showing you that Paul uses the same transitional word in the Greek that he used when he moved from elders to deacons, and that word is likewise. He's using a transitional word, the same one. It's a key one. It's saying, again, we're in the same topic, overall topic of church leaders, but we're introducing a new category. What is the category? The category is women. And you might be looking at this going, okay, well, why does it say wives? Well, if you have a new King James and King James, it does say wives. If you have many other Bibles, it actually says women. Why does it say wives here? Well, the word in the Greek is gune. Sorry, ladies, that's what you're called, gunes, all right? I didn't make it. Gune. But Gune is a woman of any age, whether she's a virgin, whether she's married, or whether she's a widow. Just a woman. Gune. And this is the same word we've been reading all throughout Timothy. Timothy chapter 2. In fact, if you just go back and look at chapter 2, beginning of verse 9, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves. That's Gune. Back at verse 10. But uh, which is proper for women professing godliness, gune. Let a woman learn in silence. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority for man. Uh, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived. Over and over again, that's gune, and it's translated women. Then you come to chapter 3, a bishop must be blameless. This is verse 2, the husband of one wife. But it's the same word, gune. So how do we know when to use the English word wife or when to use the word woman? It's the context. If he's the husband of one woman, that woman must be his wife, right? There you go. But in the Greek, it literally is a one-woman man because the word is mostly used as woman. It's woman. So here we can look at this and say then, well, should it be wives? I would say no. And I'm going to give you five reasons why that is not the case. First, I already gave you, it's that term likewise. It introduces a new category, and I really find it hard to believe that new category would be the wives of the deacons. Secondly, there's not a pro possessive pronoun. There's not an indefinite article there or a definite article that links women to deacons. It's not there in the Greek. Third, Paul doesn't give the qualifications for elders' wives. Did you notice that? We didn't go through the elders and say, and let the elders' wives live this way. But here, all of a sudden, we're going to talk about the deacons' wives. doesn't seem to make sense. I don't see that being to wives. A fourth reason is this, and I think this is the biggest one. What option does Paul have here to speak about women being deacons? See, deacons 
is the only word to use for both male and female. There is not a deaconess word in the Greek. It didn't come till after biblical times. There's, there's no such word. So it doesn't exist for him to go, and now I want to talk about deaconesses. Instead, he wants to talk about women. The masculine form of diakonos is what has to be used throughout Scripture. In fact, Romans 16, Phoebe is mentioned, who is a woman, and he calls her a deacon. So for Paul to distinguish to a different group other than deacons, there's only one word available to him, and it's gune. So it's up to the translators to say, well, is it woman or is it wives? And so some translators go, well, it's got to be wives. I would disagree. I'd say it's women. Because literally in the Greek, it's this, women, likewise, servants. Or reverent, sorry, not servants. <laughs> women, likewise, reverent. Gune, hosautos, semnos. And that's really another point here. And that's Paul uh, is listing qualifications for women that really directly parallel the men. So they got to be a, another group here. And just like the men, Paul begins with their personal character. So here's her personal character. We're going to look at these few words given for the women. He starts with the overarching qualification, just like he did for the male deacons, reverent. Women, likewise, reverent, serious, grave. So like the men, the women should be respectful. The, the women should be worthy of respect and dignified and, and honorable. And again, I think it's an overarching qualification here for these women. And like the men, where he looked at the men's communication, he looks at the communication for women. And notice what it says here in verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers. Now, I think this is interesting. As Paul considered the speech uh, for men and to talk about maybe what men might be prone to, he says they can't be double-tongued men. They can't be hypocritical. They can't be saying one thing to one person, one thing. They've got to be sincere. They've got to let their words be solid and clear and, and clear communication. But for women, he says, not slanderers, not slanderers. That word is a crazy word in the Greek. It's diabolos. What's that sound like? That's right. When you go look in your Bible and do a word study of that every single time, just about every time, it's translated for Satan, diabolos. It means prone to slander or false accuser. Satan is the false accuser of the brethren, the diabolos. The words actually used in Scripture to, um, are translated as devil in Matthew 4, where Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, diabolos there. I know I'm generalizing when I when I, when I say this, so please be, be, be patient. Paul pointed out a communication place that men struggle with, and I think he points out a, a communication place where, where many women struggle with. I'm not saying all, but many women might struggle with the idea of slander. Slander is a malicious gossip. I read a lot of Agatha Christie books, and I've not read any Agatha Christie book that has the town gossip being a man. It's always the old lady with the knitting, right? So, well, I know about them down the street. And then, you know, she starts doing the whole thing, right? Many of the drama shows revolve around the gossipy nature there. So not to say that's in your nature, but I'm just saying it can be a struggle for women. There's a counseling book I got for all the elders. It's a, a quick reference guide, scripture reference guide with topical um, things so that when we're counseling people or talking with people, just quickly we can turn in 
reference in a topic, whether it's marriage or, or um, whatever it might be, anger, and look at some scripture references. When I was back in the state last March, I, I saw that they had a duplicate book for women. I was like, well, how could, how could there be a new topic for women? You know, can't, there's not new verses, but I, when I opened and looked, it was arranged topically in areas that women would most likely counsel other women. And guess what was one of the top things in there? It was gossip. So, so Paul is bringing this out to say, listen, if a woman is going to be in this role, she cannot be a slanderer. That can't be who she is, inflicting intentional damage on others with their tongue. They've got to be women who can control their tongues. You know, James talks a lot about controlling the tongue. He tells us that, that if we say we're religious, but we can't control our tongues, we actually deceive ourselves. Our religion is useless. In fact, he talks about the great damage a tongue can do in, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Later on, he calls it an unruly evil full of deadly poison. I mean, he really has these words for the tongue. Why does Paul talk th this way about deacon, deaconesses? Well, deaconesses and deacons will be privy many times to very sensitive information. You're talking to people who are hurting and in need, and sometimes you're dealing with very, very sensitive issues. And so those people must be trusted with those, that information. They cannot be people who would take that information and possibly spread it around, maybe even maliciously. If people are going to open up about what's going on in their lives and what needs they have, they've got to be able to trust the people they're talking to with very sensitive information, knowing that they won't spread it around. So he says, women, they must be reverent, worthy of that respect, not slanderers. Second thing, he says, they must be temperate. We've seen this word before as well, nephaleos. It literally means to abstain from wine or to be sober. We saw it used back with the, the elders in verse 2. Not given to wine was the qualification in verse 3. I really talked about it in relation to the elders more metaphorically, um, speaking of, of mental sobriety because it says not given to wine in addition to temperate. But to be tempered is to be self-controlled to the extent where you're able to restrain things in your life that might distort your judgment or, or negatively affect your, your conduct. So I think Paul has in mind the full meaning here because in Titus 2, he gives a similar list to older women. Titus 2, 3, he says, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, and then not given to much wine. So I think he's got a very similar idea. The woman should be able to control herself, self-restraint, nothing in her life that can distort her judgment. And finally, the last one here, Paul says women are to be faithful in all things. Pistos, worthy of trust, one who can be relied upon. So they must have been able to prove themselves completely trustworthy in every single area. So I think Paul has everything in mind that he's been talking about. They, they can't be greedy for money either. That could be completely uh, faithful. They'll be handling those things. They'll be performing those kinds of, of duties as well. 
So as you read through these qualifications and, and look at the standard Paul has here, you have to realize this is a privileged service, is it not? They, they must then be proven to be completely trustworthy. And Paul closes this section by describing two rewards that await those men and women who serve as deacons. They don't do it for rewards. These are just rewards that naturally come because of their service. And we see their rewards here um, at the end. And he's addressing both uh, male and female deacons in this closing thought here. It's the same word, deacons. Remember, he has no other way to distinguish between men and women serving as deacons. He's already done that. So verse 13, he says, For those who served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So good standing literally means an elevated stand. They're in, in a sense, an elevated position. But that's not because they elevate themselves. That's, that's because their humble and sacrificial service to Christ and to his church, he exalts them. That's how, that's how that works, isn't it? We're, we're not to exalt ourselves. But when we humbly serve, it's Christ who exalts us. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So what he means is that they'll be respected individuals. They'll be honored people by those who are serving them. That's a wonderful reward. And the second is just as wonderful. Look what it says in verse 13, And great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Your Bible might say assurance or confidence in the faith. Humble service in this world rarely receives any kind of reward. Um, but here, I think for those who are serving in this capacity, I think they find that they're putting their motives to the test. Are they really serving with a Christ-like spirit of selfless sacrifice? Or are there underlying lying motives there? For deacons who serve well, they find confidence. They find assurance that their faith is real because you're doing this by the power of Christ. The, the Holy Spirit must be in you to selflessly sacrifice for others over and over again. I've seen deacons on their hands and knees cleaning up the dirtiest, muckiest stuff in people's homes because they're too sick or elderly to handle that stuff selflessly most of the church wouldn't even know it's happening they're just they're just there doing it they're just serving and they're not doing it for any motive but people who do that what a joy to come out and say there's no way i could be doing this unless the holy spirit were really in me i'm really serving christ he says you you great you get boldness or assurance of your faith what wonderful description of great servants in the church and i just want to close with a few words about this. One of the reasons I wanted to teach through the pastoral epistles was to get through these things could we see, so we could see the proper function and establishment of the church with its roles as elders and also deacons because we've been talking as uh, elder, elders um, about formally uh, forming some deacons in here as well. We have a church where people are just serving constantly. So it's not, it's not a hard thing to pe see people wanting to serve. You know, we've got helping hands and those things. So when the minute someone's sick or in need, boom, we're out there and meals are being provided and all that. But I think it's time to take it to the next level, particularly as we anticipate getting a building very soon. One of the great concerns that our leadership has is that 
that uh, I'd be willing to do it, obviously, but that I won't be spending all my days hoovering and managing a building. God didn't put me in this role to manage a building. But maybe there's someone else here who has those skills or has those desires. And so my desire is to begin to, to, to look at the body and to look at who, who's already doing these kinds of things. And we would like to, to look at selecting some individuals. Uh, a deacon service committee is sort of what I'm temporarily titling it, but we're going to be doing that. I thought it'd be great to teach through it so everyone could see um, who these people are, are to be. And they're going to be modeling uh, servanthood for all of us because, first of all, we're all to be servants. We're all to be serving the church selflessly, sacrificially. So would you just pray for us as we begin to pray who the Lord might have for us to serve in that capacity? It doesn't mean the minute we establish that, no one else serves, no one ever needs to stop. <laughs> That's not the idea. But perhaps there's extra things they can begin to take on for us that would, well, open us up, free us up more to prayer and the ministry of the word. So pray that you just would join me in, in praying for those things as we we talk about those things in the coming weeks. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these wonderful letters to Timothy who established so many um, truths about the church, about how it's to function, about how it's to look, about how you want, um, what, what type of uh, men and women you want in these roles. And Lord, it's so detailed and so precise. You're just so so good to give us these instructions. I think we would be even more lost in this world, the church would be, if we didn't have these things. How sad is it when your words speak so clearly about these things that so many churches just skip over them? So Lord, I pray as we even, as elders, begin to pray over deacons and, and look within the body. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. I pray for those individuals who might be sitting here. Maybe they're in this room who are hearing these words, Lord, that you would even begin to press upon their heart uh, the need to step up to that role. And so I just pray, Lord, for your spirit's guidance and wisdom, Lord. We uh, continue to lift up the building to you, Lord. We know we're still awaiting full approval of that. We trust you and your timing for that. We'll remain patient. But Lord, we just think these would be wise things to have in place before we take that next step. And so we just pray that your spirit would be with us, that you guide us, that you'd bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.